Hello and welcome to the Sportscope podcast. My name is Ryan Walker and with me, as always, is the media man, Ruben Williams. How are you, mate? G'day, Ryan. I'm fantastic as per usual. Another week of the pod, another fantastic guest. Uh, you know, some weeks where you just got to, you really start to appreciate how lucky we are to get to chat with some of the people who come across our show. So, and today uh, was absolutely no exception. Yeah, you're dead right. It's a good, it's really good reflective start to the pod. You know, some days you do just have to sit back and think, hey, there's some cool people that we talk to. <laughs> uh, and that, yeah, this week is no different as you just mm. mentioned. So let's let's crack into it. Um, but we can't continue without a quick word from our great friends at Deakin University, where every single course, Ruben, is backed by industry experts. So you can be confident you'll get the job you want with a degree that employers want. Deakin University, progressive real world learning. Ryan, this show is also brought to you by our good friends at Sports Where I Am. Give yourself a memorable summer to look forward to and head to sportswhereiam.com to find all your favorite sports. Plus, use the code SPORTSGRAD and you can get 5% off your tickets. Head to their website, fantastic platform, plenty of sport going on there. Absolutely. We love the guys at Sports Where I Am. Um, if you want to learn more about who we are or want to ask us any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. You can find a link to do so in the show notes. Or just search Ruben Williams, Ryan Walker will be on there. Now, Ruben, who is our guest today? Ryan, I mentioned we get to talk with some pretty incredible people. Andrew Ryan is our guest today. Andrew is the managing director of FIBA Media. Now, FIBA Media is a joint venture between FIBA, of course, and DAZONE, which encompasses all the rights, commercialization, production and distribution of FIBA's previous, uh, sorry, premium events and leagues. Think, you know, World Cups, that sort of thing. Um, prior to FIBA, Ryan, get this. Andrew was at the International Olympic Committee where he was a head of media working under legal and business affairs. And he was there for four years um, where he would have crossed paths with our good friend Garth Town. Uh, and shout out to Garth. He will be listening yeah, for sure. He'd, he'd have this on right away. He'd be the first mm. listener, I reckon, Garth. So Ab- shout out to him. Ab- absolutely. So if Andrew's job at FIBA wasn't cool enough, he's already just come from an incredible one at the IOC. And then before that, Ryan, he was an M&A lawyer working out of London, New York, and the other massive city around the world, Brisbane. <laughs> and since... <laughs> you know, massive, massive law town. Wow. <laughs> you've, you, you've had a cheeky... You've had a riff at... Brisbane there, haven't you? you you've no, had a little... I've put them in the same pile as London and New York. <laughs> I reckon you've had, had a little... little, little, uh, you, know little what all three, you know what all three of those cities have in common? Uh, what? They've all hosted the Olympics. And maybe New York hasn't. I'm not too sure, actually, but... Yeah. Uh, they're all right up there. <laughs> we should know that. Do they all have a big river? Because the, the big brown snake is in Brisbane. London, they've got the, the Thames. What does New York have? New York has got, oh. This is not good. We're, we're on the record here. We don't know our geography well. I think yeah. New York's more ocean, to be honest. It's not a river. Uh-huh. Mm. We'll come back to that one. Yeah. But anyway, so Andrew, 
incredible guy from some of the biggest cities in the world and the biggest organizations in the world. And we had a fantastic discussion today. One of the things I loved about it, Ryan, was he talked about how to pitch media rights depending on the market. There's over 200 countries in the world and all these different markets that want to buy international basketball. And he talked about how they tailor their approach to different markets, different continents, depending on what is going on in each place. Yeah, absolutely. I loved how he spoke about, you know, just the future of what media rights looks like. Defined OTT for us over the top. Uh, we'll remember that forever. I've been waiting to ask somebody for that for a long time. Yeah, and, um, you know, I could just... Uh, essentially tell you what OTT means, but I'm going to leave Andrew to, to give you that definition, uh, which is coming up shortly. Um, but just the complexity of what that looks like, you know, the, the days are gone where there's just a couple of broadcasters in the game and, and that's it. You know, we've now got players like Amazon and Facebook, you know, wanting to, to get into sports media rights. So the game has kind of changed forever. And it's really interesting hearing Andrew chat about that. Mm. I also love just hearing about how they package up their media rights. You know, you can buy the main event, but you can also buy these little extra bits as well to make the main event look a lot better and mm. cut in a lot of different ways for certain platforms and whatnot. So hearing how the FIBA media rights are served up was uh, absolutely fascinating to, to get the details on. And very rare you actually find this out from, from anywhere else other than the source information. Yep, absolutely. Well, let's get cracking. Grab a pen. Enjoy this chat with Andrew Ryan. Andrew, welcome to the Sports Grade Podcast. Hey, thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ruben. Great to be with you guys today. Uh, listened to the uh, show a couple of times, actually. So it's, uh, it's really, really it's had some great interviews on, uh, you know, in the, in the last couple of months. And uh, it's great resource. So really pleased to be here. Awesome. No, thank you very much. Well, we're, we're very hopeful that this will turn out to be another one of those those episodes, which um, we've got no doubt about. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we love hearing about is, you know, how people enter the sports industry, a bit about their background, their ways of getting into the industry. Um, we might start with a bit about your background. How did you end up working in sport? Sure. Well, I won't go through the whole saga because being 40 years of age now, I'm probably a little bit older <laughs> than a few of the people that you've had on the show. Uh, so my, my background professionally is as a lawyer, I, I went to University of Queensland and studied a, a, um, an LLB and a, a Bachelor of Arts specialising in psychology and probably actually assumed that I would end up in sports psychology uh, more so than getting into the legal field. But uh, for various reasons, um, you know, moving into the legal field in Brisbane was the, was the way forward and, and what I chose to do. And that ended up uh, getting me a move to London um, after a while, did a little bit of time in New York and Los Angeles, which probably makes it sound a bit more glamorous than it really was, but uh, eventually ended up in the world of, of media, um, working for a radio station in the United Kingdom called Absolute Radio. And in a pretty nice bit of timing, they had their first acquisition of commentary rights for the Premier League football going on probably only a couple of months after I uh, turned up. And it was there that I got to meet a few people who were in the sports media industry. And it was probably the first time that I really thought about the concept of having a career in sport. I think sport had always been an incredibly important thing for me and my family growing up. And certainly, I think far away what I would describe as my main passion, uh, for lack of a better description. 
And so that that opportunity of meeting a few people who had made their way into that world already uh, certainly gave me the the insight that yes, this was this was a possible thing to do. Uh, so I stepped in and did a, uh, a postgraduate course in sports law at a university in the UK. Uh, ended up coming out with the top marks out of that, which gave me a pretty reasonable selling point to to pitch myself to various organisations. Uh, yeah, that's, in, in that's pretty handy when you can say you're the ducks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, out of a class of about 15, it is like... Take it, though. So, so it's, no, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, people only need to know the headline. They don't need <laughs> you, you didn't need to say there was only 15 in the class there. We would have <laughs> thought you the best ever. Fortunately, that was 10 years ago, so in the interest of transparency, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll lay it out on the table. But uh, but also, it's a great help from some uh, the, the sports law profession in the UK is a really, really generous one. And there were two or three people in particular who, who gave me a massive boost just in terms of um, instruction, support, uh, introduction to contacts and the like, uh, which made me genuinely believe there was an opportunity there that I could eventually take advantage of uh, and ended up in a company called Perform Sports Media, which was probably not hugely known at the time, uh, but was moving its way into probably being the big, biggest digital sports company in the world, had interests across website development, uh, betting content, both data and video, uh, getting into the Nascent OTT sort of subscription service area. And from there, I just got the, the greatest grounding possible uh, in terms of the, I guess, the modern way that sports content is commercialized. Uh, and perform eventually has gone on to become design, which is you know, the you know, probably the leading independent sports streamer in the world now. It's expanded to a number of countries, um, and is, is now has a has a global approach to its operation. I'm sure it will only keep getting bigger. And so that's pretty much the potted history of making the making the jump from sort of being traditional corporate and commercial lawyer into into the sports world. It's quite a story. I, I'm interested around. You, you know, you said. You've obviously got the law background and you did sports law at, at university in postgrad. How did you go from knowing, you know, law back to front, but you, you didn't know media rights back to front? So how, how did you go from knowing a little bit to everything? Was that like a, a really long process once you got in or was it sort of covered pre sort of when you started working? Yeah, I think you know, knowing law back to front is probably more generous than some of my ex-partners would uh, would describe <laughs> my capabilities. But the I think there's there's a couple of aspects to it. I think being a being a major sports fan, and not just a sports fan, but a fan of the business of sport, and that probably sounds a little bit little bit lame. Um, but I think since since I was a kid, I'd always had an interest in why certain sports were popular. I had an interest in you know, why the broadcasting of the National Rugby League or the New South Wales Rugby League back in the day went from you know, Channel 10 to Channel 9 and what 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 precipitated that, um, had an interest in why, how sports was delivered as a, as a media product. So I think there's a lot of stuff that was was certainly not unfamiliar once I jumped into the jumped into the sports world. It wasn't like it was coming at it from a place of no background or never having given any thought to this whatsoever. So it, it was, to be honest, it was probably more uncomfortable going from the world of corporate law into music and radio and all the technicalities that come around the licensing um, and management of a, of a media property like that than it was jumping into the world of, of sports and media rights acquisition. I think most of that came pretty naturally and all 
made sense to me pretty quickly. And we also had the advantage of perform that a lot of the areas that we were getting into, like the licensing of betting data and some of the stuff that we were doing with, with the Premier Leagues uh, and the FA's data code at the time was really on the cusp of creating you know, new industries or new commercial models. And so you were almost having to use some principal knowledge to help drive the setup of these things in the first place. So it wasn't like you were coming to an area that had a monumental amount of complexity that you were never going to be able to get your head around. In fact, the, one of the advantages of going into sports media is that actually the fundamentals of it are not shockingly complex. Actually, the most important thing is more standard practice and how you get things done in an efficient period of time by asking the right questions and getting the right uh, right uh, changes through in documents or structures. And so from that part, it wasn't it wasn't an incredibly difficult transition. So, so what led to you ended up ending up at FIBA? Was it a, um, you know, a couple of decisions you made along the way or did your interest just kind of naturally pull you along to this position? So certainly, certainly natural interest in basketball, but I think that's probably the least relevant part of the, the story. I um, when I left Perform Design, uh, I went to the International Olympic Committee and worked there for four years, heading up their uh, legal and business affairs unit for media. Uh, and pretty, pretty the, tidy title at a tidy organisation. <laughs> uh, it's it's not a bad one to to carry on the CV. Uh, <laughs> It was a part of me that, that that's what attracted me in the first place. But actually, in you know, in the four years there, it was a it was a great place to work, and certainly met really really good people who are highly dedicated, um, high quality individuals along the way. Uh, but the one of the final major deals I did before moving to the ISC was actually setting up a venture with a bunch of people from uh, from Perform um, on the one side of Fever on the other side to set up Fever Media, which was a long term joint venture between uh, Perform and Fever. Uh, the last well, is lasting for 17 years was uh, was set up back in uh, back in 2016. So I already knew all of the characters that were in uh, that were involved in the Fever Media venture. They was they still are there for the most most part. But I've gotten to the point with the Olympic Committee work that I really enjoyed being a part of the Olympic movement, so to speak. Uh, you know, I absolutely love the Olympics um, as a concept and as an event. But over a number of years, I think I'd probably, as much as my base title was a lawyer, I'd really pushed myself into the commercial sphere and the digital strategy sphere. And there were probably elements there where I felt like I was contributing pretty strongly to what was happening internally, but probably just almost incapable of getting the recognition for it or incapable of necessarily getting to lead some of those projects just by virtue of what my role was. Uh, so there came a point that I that I thought, okay, if I if I want to extend myself and if I want to push myself into a, you know, a role that is more of a commercial slash management one, then I've probably got to keep an eye out for what's available. And uh, just a late night conversation with one of my old team from uh, from Perform back in a quick trip to London, um, he mentioned that they were actually looking for a new managing director for FIBA Media, um, and hadn't quite found the person they were looking for. So uh, I put my head into the ring and it all actually happened pretty quickly after that and knowing all of the different people involved, having a pretty good knowledge of international basketball, already being located in Switzerland, it was all, you know, quite a quite an incredibly, uh, it couldn't, couldn't have been set up much better. I don't, don't want to say it was a marriage of convenience by any stretch, but, it, <laughs> but there were certainly a lot of elements that 
made it very easy for me to say yes and probably easier for um, them to uh, to bring me on board. So you're you're working with Perform. They do a joint venture with FIBA. You then go off to the Olympics and then your contacts at Perform bring you back into FIBA and here you are now. Yeah, that's you've summarized it far more effectively than I do. <laughs> Bruce has done like a little but, 10 second summary of, yeah. of the answer. That's a subtle indication of Andrew, keep your answers a little bit shorter so we can no, no. the podcast. No, I, I love the details. I'm just trying to get my head around the series of events. And um, I love hearing about how, you know, if you, you don't go back to London and you don't have that coffee, you, you probably don't even know that FIBA are advertising for, for that role. So um, it's good good reason to, to always treat your people well as well. Yeah, um, you know, the, the guy that um that I was talking to, that uh, Tom Burrows was part of my legal team back at uh, back at Perform, going you know back many years beforehand. One of the one of the best young lawyers and and subsequently commercial operators uh, that there there is in the sports industry. Uh, and you know the we obviously maintained contact as both friends and, and professional colleagues. And that is you know once you start developing those relationships and those trusted relationships, then obviously there's more opportunity for those things to, to happen in the future. Um, so yes, I think it's a, it's a fundamental for, for anyone who's listened to that, who's on the cusp of, of this sort of career already in there, then, you know, absolutely what you, you want to make sure that you, you look after people and cultivate proper and authentic relationships as you are, as you move through. Mm. And for those who uh, don't quite understand, what do you mean by a, a joint venture? One of the other joint ventures that happen closer to Australia was between Channel 9 and, and Cricket Australia. Um, but what, what does it mean by, you know, an international body and an outside organisation having a joint venture? I'd, I'd probably go, I'd go as far as saying the joint venture between DAZN and FIBA is a, is a far more deeper one than the, uh, than the, the Cricket Australia arrangements. So the the FIBA, FIBA at the time had a a pretty strong base in terms of a, uh, you know, a, a great great interest in world and international basketball across many many countries, but uh, was implementing uh, some major changes to their their structure in terms of games, introduction of pretty uh, pretty detailed qualifiers processes, a lot of home and away content for for broadcasters to work with and for national federations, and this all got packaged up into something where they wanted to bring a media partner on board. Uh, partially for economic reasons of being able to give some long-term financial security, partially for investment reasons of being able to really, I guess, not, not just devote money, but certainly time and expertise to take the product forward in a way which would enable it to move into being either you know, a, a particular top tier event in major countries, but also just be looked upon as a really first class product from, from a media standpoint, and particularly in the world of basketball where, you're not, not necessarily competing against the NBA, but certainly that's what people will compare you to. It's very important for FIBA to be able to put out broadcast content that has a certain fundamental quality to it so that it, uh, so that it shapes up well in comparison. So that joint venture, without going into confidential details of it, is a contractual joint venture. So it's, it's not, we haven't created a separate entity called FIBA Media. That is the media brand that we use for for commercial purposes and for production purposes, but it it is underlying a contractual agreement between FIBA and DAZN, which looks at the obligations and the benefits that come from the, the production of that content, the distribution of that content, 
uh, the commercialization of it in terms of the sale of the media rights and who benefits and in what way from the, uh, the, the I guess, the exploitation of that from a financial perspective. Okay, cool. So they, they pay for the right to produce and sell basketball internationally. Yeah, they do. And it's, 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 but it's done. And I guess that's why we tend to always refer to it as a joint venture or a partnership. It's, it's mm. very much not a, here you go, here are these rights for forward now designed, which I'll just refer to it from now on because it's easier. Uh, go and go and license them, do your best, come back and talk to us when you've got some cash. Actually, the complete opposite we have, there is a, you know, a lot of coordination. I, I sit in the fever offices uh, itself. I will probably speak to the various fever teams, whether it's across the, the media and marketing management or the COO or the internal communications team, probably actually more than I do. Uh, the the design um, commercial team who actually look after the sale of the rights in in most countries, so it's 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 a joint venture and a partnership very much in substance as it is in name, and I think that's probably why it was seen as one of the more innovative partnerships at the time because it was really taking away that traditional sports approach of federation on the one hand saying here is a group of assets you go and do your best with them and we expect a base financial commitment in the form of a guarantee or something of that ilk uh, that will attach to that and give us financial security uh, it's moved very much into the sphere of two parties working together and bringing bringing what they have in terms of resources to try to not only exploit those rights as effectively and more effectively than they have in the past but also to try to push the product forward as much as possible Let's dig a bit deeper into media rights specifically. So your role as MD is obviously to, to sell broadcast and generate revenue for the, for, for fever and the sport. What are the first steps that you take to basically package fever's media rights up? It's a good question. Uh, so fever's, fever's interesting compared to, I guess, properties that have a strong domestic slant, which will really influence the way that uh, you know certainly if you whether it's the premier league or the nrl or the afl your domestic market is by far the most important thing that will guide all of your decision making about what you do in terms of production what you do in terms of carved out rights what you do in terms of uh you know digital platforms and how to exploit those as effectively as possible and everything thereafter is not an afterthought but certainly secondary to what you're doing there uh, as an international sport, and in particular one that's got interest across a range of, of territories, I mean, there are territories where we're genuinely a top-tier property and a hugely uh, hugely beneficial uh, property for broadcasters to have. There are other places where it's a really, really positive or nice thing to have, whether to complement a basketball strategy, complement an Olympic sports strategy, and there's others where either basketball is developing property or the interest in the national team is 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 low at the moment or still developing. So, um, you know, broadly there are many many different markets uh, types of markets that we will <coughs> we will go into. In terms of packaging it, the the available content is not necessarily the most complex part of that. So we have we tend to work on four year cycles that encompasses the men's World Cup, the women's World Cup. Uh, the qualifiers uh, for each of those World Cups, uh, qualifiers on the men's side for continental events, all of the different continental events such as Eurobasket or Afrobasket. And I guess that's where we genuinely differ from a FIFA, for instance, that FIFA controls both the, the 
continental media rights as well as the, the global media rights. So we could offer a package of content that is actually pretty comprehensive across a four year slate, which is not something that's particularly common in media rights sales for international federations. So that, that package, whether or not we just tend to do the global events plus the European events for European broadcasters, or we work with someone to make available the entire slate of, of content across the four years, that's not the most complex part. The most complex part is more about how it is that we take it to market in the first place in order to drive as much, in particular, competition as we can. And fundamentally, as much as you will see plenty of analysis as to how various broadcasters will put together bids for, for media rights, and it's always an intriguing thing to read, particularly in Europe, around the, uh, the Premier League and people calling Sky or any other broadcast uh, you know, silly, for lack of a better description, for what they pay. There's, there's an incredible amount of complexity that goes into developing those amounts. It's certainly not just a case of broadcaster X will generate Y revenue from advertising or necessarily directly link subscriptions for that product. It's having a premium property on your service. It's the ability to bring blue chip advertisers because you're giving them exposure around some, some top tier content and you can spread that revenue across a wider part of the service. You know, if you're someone like Sky, you have your customers leaving aside the digital approach have to uh, acquire a basic package for that con uh, for for Sky in addition to having the the sports pack that goes on top. So if your Sky your Premier League relevant revenues are also partially what you get from just having people who buy that basic package because they're essentially forced to. So it's a really quite complex mix. But at the end of the day, probably the greatest influence on it is how much competition there is in the market and whether whether that is whether that is real or perceived and what the threats are coming from broadcasters from the other major players in their market, whether they're trying to establish a basketball strategy or they've got a new investor who's supporting the acquisition of, you know, first or second tier content. So our job is less about necessarily trying to work out precisely what that package uh, of, of events is, but more about how do we actually shape those discussions to generate as much competitive tension as we can. Yeah. So you're selling the same group of assets into multiple markets, is that right? Correct, correct. And we'll, we will do that sometimes on a country-by-country country basis, sometimes, as, as you and your listeners probably well know, that you have broadcasters who will operate across you know, full regions, whether that's the you know, MENA, Middle East, North Africa, or Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, or you know, in some case, we work with an agency, Torneos, who manages uh, all the rights across Latin America, and some of that will be broadcasted on a multi-country basis. Some of that they will do on a territory by territory basis. Uh, but essentially, yes, it's the it's the same events, or at least a subset of those same events that is being taken to market uh, in each of those territories, um, rather rather than necessarily doing a huge amount of picking and choosing of of what might work in one place and what might not in another. And I guess that's the advantage that FIBA has with that too, is that those events that might be stronger in a particular country, uh, we can leverage those to, to bring up the visibility of others. So uh, for instance, in a, in a country like Belgium, actually the, the women's team is a uh, actually a traditionally over the last, last uh, recent times, a very, very strong team. There's a lot of interest in the women's national team. The men's team is certainly on the up, but not on the same level as consistent international performance uh, and actually it's it's our ability to use that that interest in the women's team as a lever to actually 
push up the visibility and the support that's given to the men's team is really important. And there's other countries where that will be the opposite of where you're really using the men's team and the big events like the World Cup to give a push to, to some of the women's events. So, so how many people do you end up dealing with? Because, you know, there's over 200 countries in the world and there's multiple broadcasters in all of them and you're selling the same group to, you know, hopefully reaching into every country in the world. How many different radio stations, TV stations, the rest of it, do you end up dealing with? Uh, there's a fair few. Uh, fortunately, it's not, it's, it's not me who is, uh, who is doing all the work. And to be honest, actually, in terms of leading those conversations, uh, I, I tend to turn up more towards the end for uh, for a glorious handshake than uh, the necessary <laughs> weeks of, of uh, negotiation. No, that's 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 true in some places certainly. But, um, <laughs> we have a we have a group within Design called the Broadcast Partnerships Team, uh, and there there are a range of uh, or a whole team of of salespeople there who who represent not design in terms of a in terms of the streaming organization but actually represent all of the different partnerships that design has so in addition to fever there's a wider partnership with the wta there's a partnership with european handball there's some marketing of various nfl right so there that that group will have a specialization in particular territories or particular countries and one of the big advantages for us with that structure is that those guys are able to leverage their knowledge and their relationships from many, many properties to try to drive the best result overall for that, uh, for each of the ventures. So you might have some properties where they have a very strong relationship as a result of women's tennis being particularly popular because of a key player being in that country. And that will actually help us in discussions for the FIBA rights. Very often it's it, it's also the opposite of we, we have FIBA being used as a, as a property which will generate a lot of interest and generate a lot of relationships from one sales uh, process and then that's able to be leveraged for others so that that spread of people with specific geographic knowledge and specific relationships in in particular territories is a really really important part of how we do it as effectively as we do so it sounds like it goes through quite a few sets of hands before it yeah. actually gets to the viewer <laughs> uh it does it does the the i think the one of the one of the great things about that way that team works is that we do so saying we take it by on a market by market basis a bit trite there's no, there's very rarely you'd say anything different but our ability to collaborate as a group our ability to bring different different knowledge sets um to to each market our ability to bring different relationships from each from each market is really really important and there'll be some markets whether for political reasons or for relationship reasons that I might get involved a lot more. There'll be others where it's literally taking a backseat and our um, commercial sales head will, will essentially, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the market. We'll talk about who the likely players are but for the most part that they will generally drive the, the strategy and the approach and leverage those relationships that they already have uh, in their market. So it's, it's, it's a matter of trying to do what's the, what's the best for the wider organization as part of part of each of those countries. And because we sell on a consistent four-year basis, so we've got our new cycle starting at the end of November, all of this has to happen in a reasonably narrow period of time. So we, we over the last 18 months, have gone through uh, the basically the entire FIBA sales process, which is probably not the optimal time to have been selling media rights, given the uh, given the impacts of the pandemic and what that's done to both budgets and commercial revenues um, across you know, most countries 
in the world and you know it's a major credit to the to the whole team that we've managed to come out with some very very good results and by some some renewals with existing strong broadcasters and bringing some new ones on board that'll really help drive uh the visibility and the packaging of feedback forward you mentioned that the four-year cycle you go through how um how connected are you with say the team who runs the competitions because like you'll be having conversations with broadcasters out there who might want a certain product you know what i mean like they might want a tournament somewhere in the mix that didn't exist in the last four years so like how do you come to terms with like what the broadcaster wants compared to like what fever can deliver yeah, actually, interesting question. Uh, I guess we, we, there's there's very little we can do in terms of putting an event in a in a particular place. I mean, certainly when FIBA comes to the point of deciding who will be the hosts of major events, then the broadcast picture or the broadcast landscape in that country is a very very important one. And obviously, when they put something in a particular part of the world, whether that be China for the 2019 World Cup or Japan, Indonesia and Philippines for the 2023 Men's World Cup, there's an expectation that that will result in a strong media arrangement, both in terms of the economics that sit behind it, but also what it will do for basketball and international basketball in that country. Uh, in terms of the the interaction with other departments, um, certainly with the FIBA internal competitions team, we have a very, very strong and you know, very frequent uh, interact level of interactions. Uh, you know, we will get involved in everything from tip-off times, um, you know, sometimes getting into to views on particular venues in, in countries, less about that on a strategic position, but more about just for production responsibilities and arrangements that come with it. So on, on that level, there's a, a substantial level of interaction. Um, depending on the event, we will get more or, more or less involved with direct interactions with the organising um, committee. So, uh, so certainly with the Women's World Cup coming up in Sydney in 2022, uh, given that's been on the horizon, given that it's uh, it's also linked with our sales processes out in Australia, we have interacted quite frequently with the local organising committee out there to make sure that we get something that works for works for everyone and is a strong result for for FIBA as a whole. So that that will that will all happen in a fairly natural and organic way. In terms of the broadcasters, there's there's a basic product that goes out, which is the World B. And everyone has to has to take that and rebroadcast it as part of part of their coverage. Um, there's not a huge amount of flexibility that goes with that. Although obviously we will always take on board um, you know, new trends or comments that are coming from broadcasters to make sure that that's as good a product as possible. Uh, where we try to to give them as much. I guess whether it's bespoke assistance or otherwise that we have a really really big supporting content slate and whether that's preview videos whether that's explainers of how tournaments work individual player profiles um, highlights clips across both traditional highlights packages and individual player clips and the like which is all made available via the cloud to broadcast partners and under the guise of you take these basic assets and you use them in the way that is most effective for your strategy, whether that's on a linear or a digital slash social media basis. So it's more about trying to put those assets in the hands of the broadcast partners and support them in that way, rather than necessarily mm -hmm. doing a huge amount of bespoke or individual tailoring of yeah. work. Is that is that consistent across a lot of sports, like giving those packages 
to the broadcasters going to oh. use or would they have to go and create them or do their own shoots or that kind of thing yeah very very much a sport by sport basis i yeah. think we've got a we've got a, a well well funded and well resourced team that, that manages this uh that's that's obviously one of the strengths of the fever media operation uh <clears throat> i think that so that the con the concept of making available highlights packages is not necessarily you know an outrageously innovative thing yeah. but we're because of our relationship with a company called wsc and because of the effort that we put into producing this we can deliver a high volume and a high mixture of content that probably exceeds what a lot of sporting organizations are able to do we've also invested in a couple of things around digital marketing both on the one hand support for broadcaster marketing activity where we actually work hand in hand with the broadcasters to potentially either co-create or um, uh, sometimes co-push um, marketing materials, taking the view that we'd much rather have an active hand in trying to make sure that the broadcasters are promoting FIBA content, uh, knowing they have plenty of other content that they've got the option to push at any time, uh, and also a player and influencer program where we will work with influencers in key markets or with players um, from a lot of countries to either once again co-create or push them content all under the guise of trying to increase the visibility and the recognition of the fever events or if the strategic uh, approach is trying to push to a particular broadcaster so there there's a lot of what fever does that is a probably a stretch particularly for an international federation but probably even almost operating a little bit more like you would a typical professional sports league this, this is relating a bit to your old world ryan but it's kind of similar to how you know Qantas might buy, you know, Qantas might sponsor Cricket Australia, but on top of just sponsoring the cricket, that they've they've then got to spend money to activate their partnership, that they've got to put money into, you know, running fan engagement activities around the ground so that their partnership actually looks good. Uh, in a similar way, these countries are buying the world feed, but then they need to do more to make sure it looks good, and you can either make it look good on your own. Or you can buy the extra package from FIBA who have got their their own way yeah. of making it look good. Yeah, yeah I think the, the one of the, uh, and you will find that in a lot of discussions uh, with broadcasters, and particularly when you're trying to push for you know, the highest rights fee possible, because at the end of the day, that's a, that's a large chunk of how, how an organisation like FIBA and most sports organisations make money, that you know, there, is, there is very much recognition that the broadcasters not only invest in the product, whether from <clears throat> whether from doing their own studio shows, sending their own commentary teams to major events, having their own personalities work to promote it, uh, but also a lot of work, obviously, in sort of more standard promotion, whether through their own services or, or otherwise. And that that level of investment is something that is a, a a huge benefit to the sport. And it's it's always funny when you look at uh, people who will tout. The concept of oh, these sports should just go all direct to consumer themselves. They should just launch their own OTT service. I'm personally a massive fan of, of you know, digital delivery content and absolutely um, very much someone who will push the ability to have, you know, particularly all content available at your fingertips through that sort of dedicated service. But there is sometimes a lack of recognition of the value that comes from those partnerships with third party broadcasters that have services that are running, you know, 247365 and the resources that they put behind promoting content that when you do not have those relationships then 
all of that marketing and promotion essentially sits in your hand as the, as the rights holder. And so you get you get these these sort of almost awkward analyses of yes, if you went and you know put your own Premier League OTT service together, that you could make X million dollars off the off the back of it simply because this many people watch the Premier League and they would pay eighty bucks a year, for instance. Um, it's it's an absolutely garbage analysis. There is an incredible amount of resource and expertise that's required to run your own media operation effectively, and particularly when it comes to the, to the marketing of, of that content and actually convincing people to separate with their hard-earned cash or something like that. Um, it, not to say that it can't be done, but it's more so just the lack of recognition of the complexity that comes with making that a success. For those who haven't heard of the term OTT, can you explain a bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's... So it's, I mean, OTT comes from over the top and it's it's a bit of an old school team term that sort of sometimes gets mixed up with terms like D2C and the like, um, which is direct to consumer. Uh, an OTT service is basically an internet delivered service that does not form part of a, of a pre-existing broadcast distribution service. I mean, typically you would, whether you're, whether you're broadcasting across the old, uh, old airwaves uh, back in the day, which you young bucks may not necessarily remember, <laughs> or using digital terrestrial television delivery or satellite or cable, which is very, very popular in the States. They're all sort of traditional forms of, uh, of broadcast television delivery, whereas ITT relies on delivery through, um, through the public internet. So you guys are like the pinnacle of international sport and you've got all these different packages that you can sell the rights into multiple different countries. Surely everyone wants a piece of you. And how do you go about then putting together the the, uh, the FIBA pitch? Like what are the key components for you guys to, to sell your product? Yeah. Um, I was going to say, the pinnacle of international sport, I might bring you onto our marketing team, Ruben. That's, uh, <laughs> I might use that one from now on. Once uh, again, it, it, it'll it will very much be a market by market thing. So take take Australia for the moment. We had, in terms of the, the sales process there, we had a couple of, of strong points which we're able to bring to our pitches. One is that, uh, first and foremost, that there is the Women's World Cup in Sydney next year. And so having a major world event on your um, on home soil or home hardwood, as we might say for, for basketball, is a really great selling point for a package to start with. Over and above that, Australia has a critical mass of not just NBA players, but but a number of NBA players who are having pretty consistent success over there. A couple of them, certainly at least Josh Giddy at the moment, having a great start to his his rookie season. And so there's there's both established stars and shoots of huge future promise and of individual athletes that probably resonate very much with a particular demographic that a broadcaster is either trying to retain or trying to attract as part of, of what they're doing. And so in, in a country like Australia, it's we, we can there's there's a strong history of recognition of the boomers and opals names, but at the moment actually uh, leaving aside the success in the Olympics, actually some of those individual athletes are very, very prominent in the sports media space. And so that was probably just as much a focus of what we were doing as opposed to promoting the fact that it, you know, you can be the home of the national team, you can be the home of the FIBA World Cup and the FIBA Women's World Cup. And so they're very much brands that have, that FIBA has invested in heavily to try to try to promote as genuine premium products in the, the sports world. Uh, <clears throat> there will be other countries where 
irrespective of individual talents, actually there is a big association with the uh, with the national team, in particular large parts of Europe. Uh, it, it tends to be the men's men's national team, and even when there is a fluctuation <clears throat> in that in the performance of that. So I mean, Lithuania is a good good example. I mean, Lithuania is one of the craziest basketball markets on the planet. The national team, despite having a couple of good quality NBA players in it, is probably being a little bit more down than, than up. Uh, and that's obviously against their traditional lofty standards, but the national team is still a massive, massive brand uh, within within that territory. And so pitching this as the home of, of, of the Lithuanian national team and, and actually the deal that we did was across the whole Baltics, so obviously it so involved Latvia and Estonia as well. Latvia's got a, uh, a tremendous basketball history too. It's more about promoting uh, promoting that as being the home of the national team. Uh, one of the other elements that we, or to probably two other elements that we're really pushing this cycle is that international basketball is is a place where you can you can find a lot of the i guess the generationally most important athletes that are running around today um and obviously the overwhelming majority of those will play in the nba but they are also featuring particularly at the top tier fever events as well and there is a group of young players uh, whether Giannis Antetokounmpo from from Greece or Luka Doncic from Slovenia and the like that are you know, known across the world that are huge individual personalities in their own right, but also hugely, hugely dedicated to playing for their national team. Uh, and the fact that you can take to a broadcaster that it's not just a case of your national team being the be all and the end all of this package, but you're actually getting access to a whole range of games that involve some of the biggest sporting superstars on the planet. You're right around Doncic, and I'm not even going to try and say Giannis's last name. But like, like basketball, they seem like they're very uh, they're very loyal. Like they they all really want to play for the national team. Like I, I feel like it's pro- it's probably not even true. It's probably just an observation from me. But like you're halfway through a Premier League season and there's an international break and it's a friendly, and I feel like half the guys are like, well, you know, I don't want to get injured because I I got Premier League next week. But I, I feel like basketball, they all like put the country on their back and they're all happy to play, which is one of the coolest things about international basketball, I find. But it's probably wrong, but it's just an observation. <laughs> no, well, actually, it's nice to have that that recognition, right? Because I think there's there's a lot of people who might just have a passing interest in basketball or whose interest is defined largely by the NBA that probably actually don't recognise that point. And it's yeah. maybe one that we're more easily exposed to um, from following Australia because you have got that core group of, of Nils and Ingalls yeah. and Baines and a few others that have developed actually what is a pretty remarkable culture of dedication to the national team. And they are a group that almost create a bit of an aspirational culture in terms of as you as a sports fan look and think, man, if I wanted to, if I was on a team, that's exactly the sort of group <clears throat> that I would uh, want to be a part of. Yeah. And you've hit the nail on the head with guys like Doncic, for instance, that they come from come from countries where basketball is 
is the premier national team sport. And, you know, whether there, there's other countries where it's you know, probably level with football, there's other where it might be the second team behind football, but where basketball is a, a major, major sport growing up where the national team property is something that families will get around and watch on TV in the same way that, you know, the, the British will watch the, you know, the England team go out and run on to the pitch in yeah. Euro events and the like. And it's, it, it culturally just a massive thing. And so for those players to come back after lengthy domestic or NBA seasons and play for their play for the national team is probably not just expected, but it is something that they feel very, very deeply inside yeah. and victories or successes that they have with those teams are hugely important to them, um, even compared to their, their NBA duties. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I'm really keen to hear about is the relationship between FIBA and the NBA. Um, you know, on one hand, the NBA is pretty much your best friend. And then on the other hand, they're also your biggest competitor. So how do you work together? Uh, so I would, so I guess first and foremost, FIBA and the NBA have actually an exceptionally strong relationship. So we actually had the deputy commissioner, Mark Tatum, um, sits on the FIBA central board and which is quite a, it, it, it sounds incredibly sensible on the surface. On the other hand, there's also not that many international federations that would, would take that, that higher view and say, okay, actually this, this league in the world of basketball is massive. It is, it is the biggest property that exists in, um, in club basketball. And rather than actually try to fight against that, actually say, you know, this is an incredibly important thing for the global development of basketball, the NBA, the NBA has had a number of people, whether it was ranging from David Stern back in the day, and certainly Adam Silver now, who are hugely behind the concept of international basketball and what FIBA does being a really important part of developing basketball across the globe, which is certainly something that benefits them from a commercial perspective, but also means that they have the opportunity to develop new fans for the sport in general. And FIBA's very, very well positioned to, to you know, not, not help. That is, that is FIBA's mission to grow and develop the game of basketball. So on that front, actually, from a governance perspective, it's, it's a really effective relationship and the NBA is very supportive of players uh, participating in, you know, whether it's global or continental events. Certainly, the NBA schedule makes it difficult for players to to be involved in certain certain games. But the the FIBA calendar and the NBA calendar actually work together quite well. Um, in terms of cooperation on a content level, actually, I probably talk to the the content team from the NBA sort of once every couple of weeks, maybe once a month, depending on what part of the year it's in. Um, we collaborate in terms of not necessarily co-creation of content, but certainly exchanging of ideas and strategies on the digital marketing and the social media front, which is, has been a really, really beneficial thing that's happened in, in more recent times. Uh, and I guess from our, when it comes down to the fundamentals of our media rights strategy, I guess we're, we're slightly different than, for instance, um, FINA with swimming rights or FEI with equestrian rights. And the fact that for, for countries where basketball is still a developing property, the NBA is a pretty damn good battering ram to go in there and actually, you know, through its, through its incredible exposure, the cachet that comes with, with that league, the, the wonderful way it's presented and marketed, 
it has the capacity to develop uh, new audiences in, in a way that FIBA just by itself could not. There's obviously a lot of those countries were also pushing very hard to, to generate a feeling, generate an interest in national teams as well. But those two angles work pretty well together in terms of trying to bring basketball up from a, from a level of interest, a level of fandom that if it was just one or the other would not be nearly as effective. So, um, so from, from that NBA fever perspective, it's, it's a really, really strong and, and, and exciting relationship too. I think both organizations can do so much more working together than they, they can individually. So will you go into deals together saying you can buy the rights to the NBA and FIBA together? No, not at all. So so we, we will distinctly sell our rights separately. Um, <clears throat> so certainly we will we will keep an eye on what's happened with NBA rights um, in a territory. I suspect that, you know, ex-US, they will probably um, be very aware of what we're doing as yeah. well. And that's just as much to, to see who it is, probably, probably more is to see who is developing a specific basketball strategy um, and whether or not you have a country where two or three major properties are ending up on the same service or alternatively there's a bit of a spread of the, the major basketball properties across one or more broadcasters. Just on you know one of the specifics of the commercial realities of it, do you um, go in just trying to pitch the prestige and patriotism of FIBA events or do you have to spell out to some of these broadcasters exactly what sort of return they can expect if they buy your rights? Uh, good question, Ruben. So I think we'll <clears throat> sometimes, but very rarely do we get in trying to literally explain what we think the pure value is for a broadcaster. Uh, and there's probably a couple of reasons for that. No one knows the broadcaster's business like they do. Dangerous. Um, secondly, it's, yeah, it, will, it, it is a dangerous area to get into because actually, and I'll go back to my, my Sky example from beforehand, that actually the way of the value that comes to a broadcaster um, is is a very, very complex thing. And you almost don't want to undercut the value that you're potentially bringing to them because you've actually missed part of their strategy. So, so we will try not to get into that too much. Certainly what we want to do is try to find what, you know, essentially what the broadcaster's baseline is, see if we can generate a premium for the rights based on a certain level of, of, of competition. Um, rather than necessarily getting into the, the nitty gritty of what it is that they, or what it is that we think they're valuing um, the content as. I, where we do, where we have tried to get into more an educative phase, uh, particularly over the last 18 months is on that basis, the, the competition is really what helps us drive value from markets is that in markets where we thought or, or knew there was probably likely one broadcaster who would pursue the rights aggressively. Uh, we looked at trying to develop not only relationships, but certainly actually bringing to mind the benefits of a FIBA basketball package with broadcasters who might be less familiar um, with, with the product. And so there were certain outreach efforts, both on a personal level and you know, sending certain materials to them in order to just try to generate almost that almost like creating a lead in a, in a certain way of saying, actually, maybe we need to take a step back and actually get certain organizations familiar with what FIBA basketball is, what really it looks like as a media property, what are the reasons it can be a, a property that will work for that service, whether or not targeting a certain demographic or giving them a certain bulk of content to help with a, a developing OTT strategy or something like that. So that was, part of part of what we proactively did as 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 almost a lead into the to the sales processes in a number of countries 
Unreal. And so, like, you hear a lot about these new players coming to the table, like Facebook, Amazon, looking to buy sports media rights. What do you think the future looks like? Uh, I mean, for, from a media rights sales perspective, certainly the, the more buyers you have in a market is a, is a, is a really, really good thing. Uh, you know, as, as you get a greater and greater adoption of people <clears throat> either at, you know, subscribing to, to digital services or just getting used to the fact that there is a range of places that they will get that content and certainly the adoption of things like Amazon Prime and Netflix over, over a number of years now has meant that your average consumer is actually pretty used to, to the fact that they might have to press <clears throat> you know, an app button or go into a different digital environment to get content. So I think that has become much less of a barrier than it once was. Uh, I think where, and the consideration that we will always have when we're looking at uh, selling to someone who, who might uh, make available content purely through an OTT plate, for instance, is <clears throat> what will that do for the visibility of the content? And that's not necessarily saying, oh, they're a digital service, so they will have less consumers. There are plenty of digital sports services, and design is a, is a a great example of that have, have built really, really significant audiences um, in, a, in a number of high value territories. It's more a case of you get certain OTT services that are just really overloaded with content. And back in the day, if you're relying on a linear television service, at some point in that schedule, you will be featured on the electronic programming guide. You will have priority on you know, channel one, channel two, whatever, whatever it is. In an OTT service, it is possible to get lost if your content is not being prioritised because how effectively how they make available that content, um, you know, through you know, typical typical menus, like it is it, it is possible that you can end up in you know the middle of nowhere and it's almost like a tree falling in a forest that no one knows about. So, uh, so it's that that's probably one of the bigger bigger sort of assessments we will do if we're working for someone on that that basis and whether or not that involves certain um, certain visibility or marketing commitments that come with it just to make sure that we we have fever as a, as a priority property uh, at some stage. I on uh, to take I guess more the the sort of fundamental of, of looking at the future of media. Yeah, the the strategies from some you know from the uh, from the various organisations where whether it was Facebook who everyone thought was going to come into not everyone but uh, you know a lot of people thought were going to come strongly into the sports rights acquisition mix or you've had Amazon who have done some fairly selective deals in certain parts of the world but um, certainly haven't unleashed you know an, a, a genuine Amazon sports strategy on on a global basis uh, I think those things will continue to develop each of those organizations is more than strong enough without sport as as one of their verticals on the other hand you know sport is still the programming that that you know, re retains this remarkable level of passion and dedication and almost bankability bankability that no other content has you know the the interest in an X Factor style program will wane after a certain period of time or a drama series or a comedy series, you might have a bankable star, but it only takes, you know, you know some some poor quality programming or that that person sort of going out of the consciousness and all of a sudden you've paid for something that doesn't really have a great amount of value. Sport is a pretty bankable property. And even when, you know, in those you know, high value football leagues, for instance, even when your team's a bit garbage, you can still guarantee that there is going to be a certain level of interest in viewership. So it is a still a fundamentally important part of, of a media strategy. And 
you know, those those services will continue to evolve over time, but I don't, I don't see them getting less involved in sport. Fantastic. Just need to make sure you have a good relationship with the person to make sure you, you're on the front front page of the menu. Yeah. That, oh, front page of the menu is a nice way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, and we might leave it there, but uh, that was a genuinely awesome, I think we're at 53 minutes, and it, I genuinely think we could go for a bit longer. There's deep diving into meteorites, but just hearing about your journey, firstly to get in, um, there's a bit of a longer story in there, I think, around your little US trip, but we'll leave that for another day. But um, no, we just loved your insight into meteorites. I've, I've learned a bit, even despite working with CA for four years, I didn't deep dive into meteorites. But um, it's, it's been awesome to chat to you and um, great to hear how FIBA is just continuing to kick goals. And um, I'm looking forward to one day the, the boom is coming back down under and we'll be there watching for sure, Rouge. But thanks so much mm. again and um, good luck. No, really, really great to talk to you guys. And I think, you know, the, the, the meteorite space is probably almost the most interesting one from um, from, from a commercial activity sphere uh, these days. So I mean, for, for all of your listeners out there, it's, a, it's, a, it's certainly almost fundamental that you need to know how this space works if you're looking to get into the commercial activity of the, of the sports sphere. But it's also a really, really interesting um, area to, to, to get into. So, you know, hugely encouraged everyone to do as much reading and as much thinking about this area as they can. Just quickly, we've we've got as much time as we want to allow. So, um, you you mentioned right at the start how your interest in this space was, you know, peaked by just watching the NRL and seeing where the rights of that f- fell. These days, what do you think people can do to start to, um, you know, feed their interest in this space? That that's an awesome question. Um, so. I guess it's funny you know, when you mentioned about the NRL um, and, and I guess what sort of first piqued my interest. You might, you, you guys are probably too young to remember, but actually both the the NRL or the New South Wales Rugby League back in the day and the AFL had in the, I think it was either really late 80s, certainly early 90s, just two of the best advertising campaigns that I've ever seen in the world of sport. And that was on the rugby league side. Uh, a pair of Tina Turner songs, and particularly the, the simply the best commercial that ran for probably about three or four years, that just completely and utterly repositioned rugby league as in the eighties hardcore working man's sport in you know some pretty downtrodden venues into this this game where you know you were, you were getting you know probably upwards of 35 40% of spectators as as women really almost. You know, sexualizing the game to a certain extent to achieve achieve that purpose maybe it probably approach might not go down as, as well today or might you know it might be less less well interpreted and then on the afl side you have the uh the series of unbelievable commercials that you know brought in um stars from across the world so you know there's there's a part of me that does does one sometimes i think almost that art of of mass communication and mass promotion of of sporting um, properties has has almost been lost in the social media age and whether that's that people see budgets are just much more effectively used in you know through through digital promotion and otherwise um i think it's a bit of a shame I, I think i think that is still one method of really really actually positioning your product to the masses and almost changing a perception of what something is and, and maybe less sports have that need for a perception change um at the moment as it is uh, I think the probably the 
bigger challenge that uh, that many sports will have is more so about how you're nurturing and developing that next generation of fans. And you will hear people talk about this a lot, but more under the guise of, you know, we're doing amazing engagement with with the young people because we're on social media or we've got a website and, you know, incredibly, you know, simple approaches and almost just that, I, I hope this is working as opposed to necessarily really being incredibly proactive. Um, the, I think, you know, the, the various American leagues are, are a great example of what can be done. You take a sport like the NFL, which has so many aspects to it that if you're writing a sports textbook, you would say, this sport should be dead or it should be on its way to being dead. It's incredibly violent. Players are hidden behind helmets. Um, it is it is incredibly slow. It takes four hours to play a game. Uh, it has incredibly complex rules. You know, if you're literally developing something to be the textbook version of a sport that should not be successful in the modern age and should not be proliferating around young fans, the NFL is probably not a bad uh, bad example. But on the flip side, the, the the NFL has a remarkable amount of initiatives that they they take to try to bring in young fans. Um, you know, they, they've probably been criticised from from some quarters in the states as to you know having fantasy football programs that are targeted at young fans, trying to trying to position the NFL as a, as a really you know safe, friendly, happy sport that's uh, you know with a lot of advertising targeted towards mums who are very influential in the selection of sports, particularly in certain certain age groups. Um, and yes, you can probably always find some principal reasons why that activity is good or bad, depending on your perspective, but they also, you know, genuinely devote resources, have a clearly an incredibly good internal strategy team on that front. That is almost guaranteeing that next generation of fans will continue to, to follow the NFL and follow it at an incredibly passionate level. And that is going to position them much better than a lot of other sports um, on, on that front. And there's probably not a huge amount of sports or leagues that I see that have that level of next generation fan development or recognition of how to how to actually actively cultivate and generate those fans. And a lot of it is being left to the hope of hopefully social media and the different personalities will you know, be be you know, the the sort of individuals that will continue to to be popular and continue to influence, or parents essentially bringing them forward as fans of a sport because they grew up as as fans of a particular sport. Uh, and it's a really really challenging thing to do because you go back you go back in the day when I was growing up of there being you know maybe five six seven television channels and you know when when you know the sunday rugby league match was on or when the olympics was on if you're a sports fan that's what you sat down and watched obviously now there's an immense amount of entertainment opportunities both within and and outside sport and so there you know inevitably you are not going to have the same mass appeal for for single events unless you happen to be one of those ones that just creates this hyper amount of interest and that's i think where you're seeing so much of the the commercial money and the investment going towards you know a a certain key group of, of sports properties or, or sports in and of themselves because they're the ones that people are looking at and going actually there is a momentum or, or a core group that is that is almost self-amplifying the interest in this um, and many many others which are unfortunately going the going the other way Brilliant. Well, we'll have to keep talking to people in that space to find out some of those details. It's a, it's a really, really interesting area and one of which I suspect you'll see more and more people 
uh, come out with a specific expertise in, um, in, in the coming years and, and probably a space that really needs it as well. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Andrew. Um, we really appreciate your time and thanks for sticking around a bit longer to chat. Uh, not a problem at all, guys. Thank you. Really, really enjoyed the chat uh, and, and really enjoy, uh, as I said, listening to the show and looking forward to plenty more good episodes in the future. All righty, Rubes. Wowee. What an episode. I, I actually think that that was probably the most in-depth episode we've had. Like we just, mm. like we dug and we dug and we dug and we got to the very bottom of meteorites. <laughs> like, oh, I'm not going to say I'm an expert, but wow. Like it was a lot covered, which was mm. unreal. Yeah, you're dead right. And finally someone explained to me what OTT yeah. stands for and what it means. <laughs> uh, I feel like I've seen that for so long and now I finally get it. Mm. It's a good day. I, I just loved how like, you know, you look at someone like Fieber and the eventual broadcaster, but you don't actually realize who's in between. Like, mm. for example, the people who Fieber have a joint venture with, Dazone, but then there's also, you know, people like w, uh, WSC Sports who clip up all the highlights and put these packages together to yeah. sell the extra bits to the broadcaster as well. Like, there's so many different people involved that you just have no idea about when you're looking at it on your TV from your couch. Yeah. It's a good point because if you, you know, when you watch the basketball or the footy or the cricket, it kind of, it, it looks like they've just quickly chopped something up. Like say a player has just stood out and they, they you know, they want to show some highlights. It's like, if you actually think about it, it's like they would have had to know that that player was going to play well or whatever to have that ready to go. So like, it does make sense that someone's just gone and clipped them up, making this press play, and that's it. Um, mm. But yeah, no, it was it was just cool hearing like, and even just the pitch stages and like the process they go um, to get over the line. And I actually I loved how that the pitch changes depending on the market. Like mm. for Australia, it was like the pitches all around how the Boomers did so well in the Olympics. You know, we've got all these next gen stars going to the NBA. Um, that's completely different to like a country like Latvia, who's mm. you know, or Lithuania, who's had this rich history of basketball superstars mm. playing for them. They've sort of gone a little bit downhill in recent years in terms of results, but like it's a, it's like their national passion and love is is that basketball team. So it just completely changes, um, which is something I haven't, I haven't really thought about. Yeah. Little known fact, the uh, the Sportscode podcast does quite well in the Baltics, for those yeah. wondering. Yeah. I'd love to reel off some numbers, but I don't have them handy. <laughs> um, but yeah. Well, no, uh, it was it, it was we'll have a meetup in We'll have a meetup in Vilnius at some point. Yeah, I would have thought so. It makes a lot of sense. Um, what I will say, though, that those listening, you know, Andrew said his passion will not his passion, wasn't really his passion to start, but what he was really curious about growing up was sort of who broadcasts the sport. And he mentioned the NRL and AFL and how that can change. And here in Australia, you know, it's seven, nine and 10 who are sort of like the big um, players in, in broadcast. Um, so I'd encourage people, you know, when you're watching your sport tomorrow or on the weekend, just be quite curious about how it's different. You know, we're lucky 
in Australia where there's or all over the globe, there's, there's multiple broadcasters who do different sports and they often change from year to year and just look at how it's different for sport to sport um, and get curious about it. Cause if you actually spend some time, you know, looking at it and actually with intent of seeing how the, it's actually being broadcast, you'll find it, it is quite different from, from sport to sport. So I encourage people to do that. If you are interested after that chat with Andrew. Mm. And you start to realize how every single detail has some sort of, you know, legality around it, mm. what they are allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do. There's all these different intricacies. Like everything has a, an absolute reason whether, you know, the brought the, commentators are allowed on the ground or they've got to be in the studio or they've got to cut to an ad break or they can play the entire quarter or match or whatever. Um, everything's got a reason. So yeah, keep your eye out for those, those little intricacies, Ryan. Absolutely. Well, um, we'll wrap it there, but thanks so much for listening. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn. Uh, we'd love to chat with you and answer any questions you've got. Uh, you can find a link to, to those in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.